Praise God. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you once again for the opportunity to be in this place. We thank you for your presence. We thank you, Father, for all of the good and wonderful things you've already done in this house and in the lives of your children. But I want to thank you that you're not finished. Mm -hmm. I want to thank you for the beautiful work that you shall complete today in our lives. I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for your word's work in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. And everybody said? Amen. 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 Praise God. God bless you. You may be seated. I'm getting older, and so the bigger the print I can make my notes, the better off I am. Every time I step up here and use this computer screen, though, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, what if I have to say, Nathan, I have lost my sermon notes in the cloud, and I don't know what that is or where they are, but they appeared. They're here. We're in Colossians. You remember that? It has fallen my lot to speak to you today from Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 through chapter 4, verse 1. And before we get started, I, I want to take a moment here to clarify something. In the day and age in which we live, this has become a very important subject, and that is the subject of slavery. Now repeat after me, slavery is bad. Slavery is bad. Slavery needs to be abolished. Slavery needs to be devastated. How about this? Removed from the entire world. Slavery needs to be removed from the entire world. It needs to be annihilated. Amen? Now, what we're going to do today in Colossians is we're going to look at slavery through the eyes, through the lens of the first century church. Some of you know it was different back then. Half of the Roman Empire was slaves. Half, nearly half the people under the rule of Roman, on the Roman Empire were slaves. How many of you know that in one day and in one message from Paul it wasn't going to be eliminated? But how many of you know that the seed for the elimination of slavery in the world could be planted on that day? That's important. And that's what we're going to focus on today. I, I didn't want you to hear me enter into this message and feel that I've made light of slavery because I don't. Slavery is terrible. And it needs to be annihilated from the world. Amen? Amen. All right. The title of the message today is When Christ is Lord of the Workplace. Because when you examine how Paul approaches slavery in the first century church, you can apply those same principles to the workplace that you and I work in today. All right? In Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 through 4-1, it says, Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. 
Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. A master of ceremony said to a guest of honor at a retirement dinner, as a token of our appreciation, we have created this special gold watch to serve as a reminder of your many years with us. It needs a lot of winding up. It all, it's always late, and every day at a quarter to five, it stops working. <laughs> I guess good help is hard to find, isn't it? You ever wondered how that slogan, a slogan like that ever got started? It must be because good help is hard to find. However, imagine if you were needing a job and you opened up the, the want ads in the paper and you read this. Help wanted, menial job, no pay except for room and board, no chance for advancement, no benefits, no days off, no vacation, on call 24 hours a day. Once accepted for employment, the management has the legal right to beat or even to kill you as he sees fit. Line starts here. <laughs> you wouldn't line up for that job, would you? In one place I worked, there was this sign on the refrigerator that said, beatings will continue until morale improves. It was a joke, but, but weird. Can you say amen? <laughs> kind of weird. Some of you may be thinking, though, I already worked there, preacher. <laughs> I don't need to apply. But that job description fits the situation of many of those in the church in Colossae to whom Paul wrote. They were slaves, owned by their masters, regarded in the Roman world as a piece of property, not as human beings. They had no rights. In our text, Paul shows how Christian slaves and masters should relate to one another. Interestingly, Paul devotes more space, and this is important. Listen to this note. Interestingly, Paul devotes more space to this topic than he does to the relationships between husbands and wives and parents and children how we relate to each other. It's important, amen? He probably did this because along with this letter, he was sending a runaway slave, Onesimus, whom Paul had led to Christ in Rome, back to his master Philemon. No doubt there were many other slaves in the Colossian church as well. Slaves were considered a part of the household, so Paul deals with them in the context of a family relationship. He wanted to make sure that no Christian slave mistook Onesimus' conversion to mean that he could rebel against his master and that no Christian master abuse his authority over his slave. I've often thought, but why didn't Paul attack the institution of slavery as being evil? Good question, isn't it? Why didn't he encourage slaves to resist evil masters? Still another good question. Amen. Why didn't he denounce those who called themselves Christians and yet owned slaves? Many people today who don't know much about the Bible reading this for the first time would say Paul was all wrong. But once again, look at it through the lens of the first century church. Amen? At this point in history, listen to this now because this is powerful. Christianity was not a powerful public force in the first century. It was an almost unheard of splinter sect off of Judaism. If Paul and other Christian leaders had associated the faith with an, an, with an anti-slavery movement and had that movement been defeated in a bloody slave rebellion, it could have been a death knell for Christianity. Does that make sense to you? How many of you believe that God has timing to everything he does? 
By this time in history, Roman slave owners have come to view work as low and degrading. Paul elevates all work, whether manual labor or management, by saying that whatever we do, we should do it heartily as unto the Lord, not for men. He taught the radical principle that in Christ there is, and I quote, no slave and free man, but Christ is all in all. Colossians 3, verse 11. This was to establish the personhood and equality of a slave with his master. Equality of a slave with his master. In Philemon chapter, I say chapter 1, there's only one chapter in Philemon. Verse 16, in Philemon 16, the slave in Christ is a brother to his master. That's what it says. That's what Paul was warning Philemon about when he was encouraging Philemon to take Onesimus back into the family. Does that make sense? Reminding Philemon that you may be a master, Onesimus may, may be a slave, but you are brothers in the Lord. Can you say amen? Paul didn't stop by telling slaves to do their work well, but went on to giving masters the command to treat their slaves with fairness, reminding them that they have a master in heaven to whom they are accountable. How many of you know we're all accountable to somebody? Amen? History has proven Paul's approach to be wise. These Christian principles have toppled the evil of slavery at different times throughout history. Based on his Christian faith, William Wilberforce waged a decades-long battle against slavery until it was officially outlawed in England in the early 19th century. It took a civil war to make a difference in the United States in 1865. But although it is outlawed in much of the world today, sadly, there still are many slaves. Doubt it not. Such as women and children enslaved for unspeakable purposes, even in America. Even in America. Hopefully, through Christian efforts, this evil will be exposed and eradicated. How many of you know prayer makes a difference? We need to rise up, amen? Or we need to kneel down and be people of prayer, amen? And see the force of God work. Christianity is not just a nice Sunday theory. It applies directly to our work. Whether you're an employee or an employer, if you will practice what Paul spells out here, you'll have many opportunities to bear witness of the Lord's work in our lives. Well, how in the world will we do that? How many of you have ever been curious about how a sermon comes together? You ever been curious about that? First point, put it on the board. First point, we all must make Christ the Lord of our work because this is how we're going to do it, amen? We all must make Christ the Lord of our work. How do I know this? If you were going to sit down and prepare a sermon like this, you want to be able to draw from the Word of God certain words that jump out and grab you. Watch this with me. Listen to this. Paul underscores this point by repeating the word Lord five times. The word Lord shows up more often than almost any other single word in these verses of Scripture. Lord. Say that with me. Lord. Paul underscores this point by repeating the word Lord five times. Fearing the Lord, in verse 22. Do your work heartily as for the Lord. Verse 23. From the Lord you will receive the reward. That's in verse 24. And again in verse 24. Because in verse 24, Lord shows up twice. Amen? 
It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Verse 24. And then in Colossians 4.1, it's interesting. Listen to this. It says, you too have a master. Same Greek word trans that the word Lord is translated from. You too, masters, have a master. You too have a Lord. Can you say amen? You too have a master. Same Greek word Lord in heaven, Colossians 4.1. Clearly, Christ is meant to be the Lord of our workplace. Amen? He's meant to be that. You may say, well, you don't know the group I work with, uh, preacher. You don't know who, 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 you know. What if you're the only one? Then by jinkies, be the only one. Amen? You can only be responsible for yourself when it comes to a message like that. Can you say amen? amen. Are you following with me? Okay. Clearly, Christ is meant to be the Lord of the workplace. Our relationship with him should transform the way we act on the job, whether as employees or employers. We're going to consider four things under this, under this point. Four things. A, making Christ the Lord of your work is important because your workplace is your mission field. Paul tells these slaves who were often regarded as, regarded as a piece of property or a disposable tool, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Not that master, not that boss, excuse me, not that person you're working for, but Jesus Christ. Amen? Colossians 3, 24. Well, I got to thinking, slaves, slaves. You know, let's, let's go back to that first century church and let's look at this. We're not, not even talking for the moment about where you work now. I'm talking about these slaves. I thought... When and where did they serve Christ? They probably worked 80 to 100 hours a week serving their masters. They had no free time as we know it today. How many of you are like me? I got to have some downtime once in a while, you know? I got to have some time for myself, I think, you know? <laughs> I, I think, you know, I'd like to sit back and watch TV, find a football game. I don't care if they're playing it. It's already been played. I know the score. I want to turn it on sip on, you know, my, my juice-flavored water or whatever and watch the game. I got my downtime. Slaves didn't get it. They didn't have it. They had no free time as we know it today. They were probably even restricted in how much they could attend church, much less in serving. Does that make sense? So when did the slaves serve the Lord Christ? When did they serve him? The answer... They served Christ while they were fulfilling their duties as, uh, on, on the job as slaves. They served Christ while they were fulfilling their duties on the job as slaves by their distinctive work habits and perhaps occasionally by verbal witness. They were Christ's representatives. Their workplace was their mission field. How many of you remember from 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 114? Do you remember the story of Naaman, the serial general in the Old Testament who had leprosy? You remember that? There was a little Hebrew slave girl that Naaman and his wife owned. And she mentioned to Naaman's wife, oh, that, that he would go and see Elisha in Israel and, and be healed of his leprosy. So Naaman went at the word of a little Hebrew slave girl, went to Israel, 
found Elisha, and Elisha gave him instructions, and at first he resisted, you remember? He didn't want to go dip in the dirty river Jordan. There were plenty of beautiful, clean rivers in his homeland, but God's instruction was go dip in the dirty Jordan. Dip seven times. He resisted at first, but when, when another servant told him, how, what if he had told you to go conquer this or go do this great thing or that great thing? You'd have been happy to go do it. When all he's asked you to do is dip seven times in a, in a, in a river that you're not real happy about. No big deal. Just go do it. And he did it. And the seventh time he came up completely healed, right? So, so even a little slave girl was a missionary for the God of Israel in this influential Syrian household. She was in her mission field. Oh, she was just a slave. What could she accomplish? She represented God. How many ever heard of Chuck Swindoll? I love Chuck Swindoll. Chuck wrote a book called You and Your Child. It was published by Thomas Nelson and on page 85. I want to tell you what page this is on. I like Chuck Swindoll. And, you know, some of my family members call me Chuck, but don't you do that. <laughs> Just throwing that out there. But anyway, in this book, Chuck says, he tells about speaking at a family camp where he emphasized the importance of God's hand in every calling or profession. All right? He encouraged each Christian to realize that his or her vocation is their ministry. That's important. At the end of the week, a man came up to share how much the week had meant to him and his family. The director of the camp asked the man what he did for a living. He replied, what's my work? I'm an ordained plumber. <laughs> Chuck liked that so much, but he spoke up and told the man, well, you know what? Before Jesus became the great and mighty teacher that he became, he was an ordained carpenter. <laughs> I like that. Wherever you work, you have opportunities to be a witness to people that no pastor or missionary has contact with. Many of your co-workers never read the Bible, but they read you every day. They may never read the Bible, but they read you every day. Amen? Even if they don't know that you're a Christian, they should be able to see that there's something different about you. You don't laugh at dirty jokes. You don't join the gripe sessions. You don't run others down behind their backs. You're honest and trustworthy. It's because you view yourself as a missionary and your job as your mission field. Even if you didn't consciously do it before, do it consciously now. Amen? Pray for opportunities, whether through your work habits or your verbal witness. Now, listen to this. Not necessarily on company time. How many believe that as a prayer warrior, you can be wise like a serpent and gentle like a dove and be real smart by the leading of the Spirit about how you share Jesus and the devil can't stop you? The, the laws, the rules, those people that all sour, you know, attitude-wise can't stop you because God's pretty smart. Amen? I can tell you right now, I'll never forget as long as I live being a cop in Nome, Alaska and being told by the city council, well, uh, Officer Dennis, we know that you pastor a local church and uh, we know that you're an ordained minister, you know, and we know that uh, we're not hiring you to be a preacher. But if someone out there that you're arresting or dealing with wants you to pray for them, they ask you to pray for them, you have our blessing to go ahead and pray for them. You know how unheard of that is? That's a God thing. It's a God thing, Amen. 
All right, these are sub-points we're dealing with, so go B, right there. Making Christ the Lord of your work is a matter of the heart, not an outward show. Paul instructs these slaves in Colossians 3, verse 22, to do their work, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. For emphasis, he repeats in Colossians 2, 23, whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord, rather than for men. They weren't just to put on a good show when the master was around while grumbling with the other slaves the rest of the time about how they were being treated. They were not to impress their masters while they were looking and then goof off when the master was out of sight. I know you don't know anybody at work does that, amen? Rather, they should enthrone Christ as the Lord of their hearts. That reality should manifest itself in all we do at work, in all of our work. Amen? True Christianity is a matter of our hearts before God. It's, listen to this, this is important. It's not just pasting Christian virtues on an unchanged heart. Rather, it's practicing Christian virtues because God has changed our hearts. Amen? As Paul instructs in Titus chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, and keep noticing this, when I keep moving around to these different verses of Scripture, that in the other letters written by Paul, you're getting an idea. You should be catching on that there was a whole lot of times that Paul addressed slavery and how it, it, it should work before it gets abolished. Amen? Even if slavery had been totally and completely abolished today, these guidelines would help us on our work jobs in the day and age in which we live. Can you say amen? In Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, regarding Christian slaves... Paul said, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters and everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. If God is truly our Savior, our behavior on the job will change from the heart. Next sub-point, C. Making Christ the Lord of your work means that you work primarily for Him. Amen? Christ is what I call the big boss. Christ is the big boss over, over every earthly boss. So while your earthly boss is your immediate supervisor, even if he owns the company, he isn't the ultimate supervisor, Christ is. Amen? A seminary professor that I heard of named Dr. Howard Hendricks told of being on a flight where an obnoxious man was raising a stink about every minor grievance he could think of. You've never met anybody on a flight like that, have you? <laughs> Even though most people would have told the guy where the exit door was and on a plane, that's a neat thing to do, right? <laughs> Each time the flight attendant responded with kindness and grace. After watching this for some time, Hendricks called her over and complimented on her good attitude with this difficult man. He asked her her name, so that he could commend her to the president of the airline. He was taken aback when the flight attendant responded, thank you, sir, but I don't work for American Airlines. <laughs> she looked like she worked for American Airlines. She had on a uniform and a name tag, right? But what she said was, I work for Jesus Christ. American Airlines just pays the freight. <laughs> I like that. Wherever you work, wherever you work, if you see that you work primarily for Jesus Christ, the job takes on a new dignity. Amen? And new dignity and meaning as you see yourself serving Him. Amen?
Subpoint D. Making Christ the Lord of your work means focusing on the eternal perspective and not on the temporary. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, he's referring to the rewards of the Lord, which the Lord is storing up in heaven for those who are faithful to him. How do I know this? I read it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 14. I read it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. I read it in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. In the mouth of two or three witnesses, let a thing be established. Amen? For a society where slaves had no legal or property rights, this was a radical concept. Even though they were disenfranchised on earth, they could know that the Lord would reward them richly in eternity. Now, I'm going to tell you, this is an important point here. So I'm going to slow down a little bit. I've been doing my very level bottom best with God's help. Amen. <laughs> to stick to my notes, you know, for time's sake. But there's something I gotta, I've got to slow way down here for a minute. You've got to hear this. Scholars debate about the application of verse 25 because it reads like this. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done and that without partiality. Question. Is he warning the slaves or is he warning the masters? Let me read it again. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done and that without partiality. Pausing here for a minute is important. And the question's important. Is he warning the slaves or is he warning the masters? Look at it in the context. Paul's encouraging slaves who were mistreated to do what was right in spite of it. It seems more natural to take the verse in the sense of don't worry about those who mistreat you and seem to escape any consequences. At any rate, God's good at keeping the score. Amen? But he's also a merciful God. Amen? The Lord will repay them someday, and he won't be partial just because they're important in the eyes of men. He's saying that we need to focus primarily on the eternal perspective and not on the world around us. Now, listen to this. Because I, 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 you're constantly reading and you're, you're going after information. And I found some critics that would dismiss this as a pie-in-the-sky pie when you die thing. You know? They'd say, how cruel to tell slaves, endure harsh, unfair treatment now and someday you'll be rewarded. But listen to me carefully. But the Bible clearly teaches that we may suffer for the sake of righteousness in this world. But God will right all wrongs in heaven. Sometimes we need to put all of our eggs in the heaven basket. I talk about heaven a lot. Because I noticed that I was so happy in my life with all of my physical surroundings. I was so pleased, so happy. I was content, you know that he really didn't think much about heaven until one day there was a rattle in there. You know, how many of you know sometimes God's got to put a rattle in there? He's got to rattle things a little bit. All I can tell you is I don't care what you're going through, whether it's terrible, whether it's bad, or whether it's great, and really good, and you're happy and content, heaven's going to blow it all away. Heaven's going to blow it all away. But let me reel myself back in. Years ago, I was reading in 1 Corinthians when I was hit by chapter 15, verse 19, where Paul says, now I've got to read this real slow because, you know, it, 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 it's an impact scripture, but you can miss it if you're not careful. 
If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, let me read that again. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. I thought that's not true in my experience or in the experience of most American Christians. We're, not, uh, we're, we're into having our best life now. Are you with me? We want to know how being a Christian can give us happy homes, successful careers, and help with all the problems now. How many of you know we're American Christians? We don't want to wait for anything, do we? We walk in a room, we hit a light switch, we expect the lights to come on. Bing, right? I can even walk over to my fireplace and hit a switch. And whoosh, flame comes up. I can hit another button and a fan comes on. I'm spoiled rotten, right? And I'm the only one in the room. <laughs> we're into having our best life now. We want to know how being a Christian gives us happy homes, successful careers, and help with all of our problems now. Then heaven will probably be a nice bonus, but it's not central. Let me tell you something. Heaven's everything. Heaven's where we're going to go be with him forever. Amen? I don't care how good things are here right now. Even so, come Lord Jesus. That's right. Amen? Why don't we emphasize heaven? Listen. Listen to the answer that I got. Because we're not being persecuted for the sake of the gospel. We're not being persecuted for the sake of the gospel. If like some of our brothers in Syria, Muslim extremists had taken my daughter as a slave, killed my sons, and confiscated my property and all my belongings, heaven would not just be nice, it would be absolutely necessary in order to make sense out of my life. Does that make sense to you? You know, I, I, I'm talking to you about these things today, and I understand this. I mean, many of us may be very happy on our job, and, and many of us may be just showing up there. But listen, that job, that job you got, it's important. It's important, that job that you got. We don't live or die by the money. We live or die by Jesus, amen? But, but let me tell you that there's a reason why we call our money, our job, our livelihood. Do you understand what I'm saying? If you don't have a livelihood, it's difficult to buy groceries. It's difficult to pay the light bill. It's difficult to keep gasoline in the car. It's difficult to have a car if you don't have a livelihood. But what if you're in a dead-end job? What if, it's, if your boss is unfair? What if they totally and completely mistreat you all the time? Well, I learned in 1 Corinthians 7.21, there's nothing wrong with trying to better your situation by getting a different job. Amen? But in the meanwhile, be the best employee that you can be as a witness to your boss and to your fellow workers. Point number two. Your reward awaits you in heaven, so when Christ is the Lord of the workplace, employees will work what the version of the Bible, the English standard version of the Bible says is heartily. Heartily. You know what that word means? When Christ is the Lord of the workplace, employees will work heartily. It means literally from the soul, from down deep inside. You'll work heartily. 
Subpoint A, working heartily means obeying your employer. You may be thinking, obeying, but I'm not a slave. Do I have to obey my boss? <laughs> I read about a company that has a lunchtime seminar for employees on different topics. A memo promoting the next session read, Lunch and Learn Seminar, Who's Controlling Your Life? In parentheses it said, Get Your Manager's Approval Before Attending. <laughs> All these little quirky things came from Reader's Digest. I can't take credit for them, right? Of course, Paul does not mean that you should obey your boss if he asks you to do something illegal. Amen? If he wants you to help him cover up something that's wrong, you need to speak up and say, Can't do it. I'm a Christian. As a Christian, I, I can't do it. You, you speak up. Amen? Apart from doing things that are illegal and that please the Lord, you should obey your employer, though. Amen? Subpoint B, working heartily means doing quality work. Paul says that our work should be, not be with eye service as those who merely please men. In other words, a Christian employee should not just work to impress the boss or work when the boss is looking. Besides, God's always looking. Amen? So do your best, even if it never shows up to men. I saw another cartoon in Reader's Digest that, that pertains. It was a painting of a guy standing in front of the power or the Tower of Pisa. Remember the Leaning Tower of Pisa? But he's the builder, and he's standing there in the tower straight up and down. He said, I cheated on the foundation, but I don't think anybody will ever know. <laughs> I like that. Subpoint C. Working heartily means having a positive attitude on the job. Sincerity of heart means singleness of purpose. Undivided service. It refers to a worker who concentrates on his work because his heart's in it. As I said, the word heartily means from the soul and points to inner motiv motivation. The reason why we do the things we do. Amen. It would have been easy for slaves to gripe about the working conditions and about the unfair treatment they received from their masters. But if they did their work heartily as for the Lord, rather than for men or their masters, they'd have a positive, cheerful spirit that would radiate the difference Christ makes in our lives. Can you say amen? In Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, Paul says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, Children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Having a positive attitude on the job, free from grumbling or complaining, will make you stand out as a light in a dark, dark world. But Paul doesn't just address the slaves. He also says, last point, amen? Last point. When Christ is Lord of the workplace, Employers should be just and fair. Because some of you in the room are employers. Not everybody in the room is an employee. Some of you are employers. Amen? Colossians 4.1 Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Justice gives us what is legally due. Fairness doesn't necessarily abide by some written law but it grants what reasonable minds would agree upon as proper treatment. How many of you know that the golden rule is fair? The golden rule is fair. Employers should treat their employees as they would want to be treated if they were in their place. 
The Christian employer should remember that he or she too is a person under authority. He or she must stand before God and give an account of how they handled the responsibility given to them as the boss of others on the job. Was he or she arrogant or humble? This is the accountable thing before God. Did he or she abuse their authority for their own advancement? Or was he or she careful only to use it to give good leadership to the company? Did he or she listen compassionately to the needs of their employees? Or did they put the goal of making money ruthlessly above their people? Did they set an example of integrity or did they compromise and then try to cover it up? Have they been honest with customers and employees or are they deceptive? Every Christian employer or manager needs to remember that they have a Lord in heaven to whom they must give account. In conclusion, whether you're a Christian employee or employer, making Christ the Lord of your workplace is at the heart of your witness for Christ. In Robert Bolt's play, A Man for All Seasons, Sir Thomas More, who eventually was executed because he would not consent to King Henry VIII's divorce, urges a restless underling, a student, to become a fine teacher. The student responded, if I was, who would know it? Asked the young man. Moore replies, you, your pupils, your friends, God, not a bad public, he says. Not a bad public. Who will know if you're a conscientious, hardworking employee or a sensitive, fair employer? You, those you work with, those you live with, and God. Not a bad audience, amen? So the end result of this message is for me to tell you to take Christ to work with you. Don't leave him at home. He deserves to be the Lord of your workplace and your workspace, even if he isn't for anybody else there. And let me just say this again in closing. What I was trying to get across to you earlier with God's help. Your life, you know, you, you may be sitting here today and your life may be in a shambles. You may be under terrible attack. Maybe awful things are happening all around you. Maybe you can't see up. There are times in people's lives where things can get that bad. Maybe you're under attack, even in your mind. Maybe the devil's trying to bury you in all kinds of doubt, fear, and unbelief and all kinds of problems. Hang in there with Jesus. He's the only answer. Amen? It's the only way out. And, and you know, I, I'm not going to stand here and tell you that I haven't met people that their entire life, right up in the old age, was a struggle. It's a struggle for a lot of people. Amen? But I talked about heaven earlier because one day, no maladies we've ever suffered in this world are going to matter. No injustice that, that you may have faced. And I know there's people in this room that have faced injustice. Amen? And terrible things have happened. And terrible mistreatments have unfolded. There's no limit to man's inhumanity to man. Amen? But we are children of God. Amen? Stand up with me and let me pray for us today. Father, in Jesus' mighty name, I want to thank you once again for your word.
Before I turn this over to Pastor Lord, I just want to ask you right now to touch in each, each and every one of our lives. Burn this message, I pray, in our hearts. Help us to be better employers. Help us to be better employees. Father, I want to thank you once again because I believe that the seeds were planted at the day of the writing of these verses of Scripture for slavery to be dealt with in this world. In history, throughout history, mankind has ridden a roller coaster on the subject. But I come against slavery in this world in all of its forms in the mighty name of Jesus. I want to thank you for the unity of the church that comes through Jesus Christ and Him alone. I want to thank you, Father, for the times that you've forgiven us. For those times we've been lazy at work. We've misrepresented at work. We've done things that were displeasing to you at work. Help us to know, Father, from here on out as we turn to you. You can guide us, lead us, and direct us, and you're more than willing to do so, Father. To cause us to be pleasing to you in everything we say and do. Now, Father, I pray for those people in this room that may be facing dilemmas that seem so overwhelming and so overpowering. I thank you that the name of Jesus is greater than any foe, any problem, any doubt, any fear, any amount of unbelief. The name of Jesus overcomes and gives us victory. In Jesus' name we pray. In Jesus' name we pray.